All right. Good morning once again. Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 3, and then kind of put your finger in chapter 4, and I'll tell you why in a second. If you're new with us, welcome. It's good to see you. We are working our way through the book of Philippians here at Calvary on Sunday morning. Do it kind of in an orthodox way for us, at least. Usually we take a book and just go through it verse by verse, which we have done with Philippians a number of times. The Lord laid it on my heart, though, to develop it this time by uh, its theme. The theme is joy, joy in adversity, really. And who doesn't need that today? So um, as I have told you before, I just took a concordance and looked up every place in the book of Philippians, the word joy or rejoice appears. And I studied that passage, and those became the main thoughts, the main points for our study through this book. And uh, so, so far, we've looked at joy in fellowship, then joy in proclaiming the gospel, then joy of faith, then joy in unity. Last week, we finished joy in service. And this morning, we want to look at or start to look at number six, joy in the Lord. So look at chapter three, verse one. Finally, my brethren. Rejoice in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This was a suffering church. They were being persecuted for their faith. So Paul is basically saying, look, whatever else comes your way in life, whether good or bad, rejoice in the Lord. Now, this was something that Paul had taught all the uh, churches he wrote letters to. In fact, uh, we remember what he said to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses uh, 16 to 18, where he said, Rejoice always. He didn't leave it there, though. He went on. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, you know, you read that and go, okay, well, thanks, Paul. You know, if I feel like it, I'll do, rejoice. And, you know, if I have a little time on my hands, I might pray a little bit. In the Greek, these are all commands. This is not a suggestion or, eh, hope you find the time. This means do it because it's critical to your walk with the Lord. Now, he talks about in Philippians 3 and chapter 4, he uh, talks about joy in the Lord. And guys, that's not the same as the joy of the Lord. They are different. Think of the joy of the Lord as a joy emanating from Jesus the way sunlight emanates from the sun. The sunlight comes from the sun but is not the source. However, joy in the Lord speaks of the joy that is ours when we are in Christ, when we're saved. This joy is rooted in our relationship with Jesus, who is the source, right? He is the source of our joy, uh, a joy that is ours by virtue of us being, listen, in him, right? One with him, a member of his body. Joy in the Lord works its way out into our lives as the joy of the Lord. A practical joy that others notice that draws them to Jesus. Look, we're living in a hurting world and it's not getting any better. And it won't till Jesus returns. The idea is though that people are scared. They're suffering. They're feeling the pinch of inflation. They don't know where the money's coming from maybe next week to pay the rent or the mortgage or the car payment. People are scared. People are feeling desperate. And here you come with joy. And they know from looking at you, it's not a manufactured joy. You're not putting it on. It's coming from a place deep inside. They can sense it. And they're going to be drawn to you to ask you what it is about you that you can have this kind of joy in the midst of this adversity we are going through as a nation. And then you have a chance to tell them about Jesus. So, again, joy in the Lord works its way out into our lives as the joy of the Lord. Practical joy. Others notice draws them to Jesus. But joy in the Lord is a personal joy. Others a practical joy. This is a personal joy that continues 
every day as we maintain our fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself said this in John chapter 15, which I'd like you to turn there. In John chapter 15, the classic passage, the classic teaching on abiding in Christ. This is absolutely a critical passage, not just on this subject, but for everything in the Christian life. Let's uh, read the first 11 verses. And as we do, notice how many times um, Jesus uses the word abide just in these 11 verses. He said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be, uh, shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So Jesus tells us here that our joy, and he's talking about joy in the Lord, the topic we're looking at this morning. Our joy, joy in the Lord, will be full as we abide in him every day, as we abide in him every day. The core principle of this entire passage in John chapter 15, verses 1 to 11, um, on bearing fruit in the Christian life and having fullness of joy is built around the concept of abiding, abiding in Christ. Guys, that is the heart of the passage and the secret to everything in the Christian life that God desires for us. That's why I say this is not a side issue, it is the issue. Once you get saved, this becomes the major issue in our Christian life. If you don't think of anything else, think of how important abiding in Christ is every day. We'll talk about that more in just a moment, but I want to lay it out there for you. Uh, this word abide, again, is a key word, especially in John's, throughout the Old New Testament, it's a, it's a key word, but especially in John's writings, occurring 11 times in chapter 15 alone, 40 times in his gospel, and 27 times in his epistles. What does it mean? If it's that critical of an idea, what does it mean? Well, the Greek word is meno, meno, and it means to remain or to continue, to remain or continue. When it comes to abiding in Christ, there are two sides to it. And I'm just laying some groundwork. This is fundamental stuff. When it comes to abiding in Christ, there are two sides to it. There is union and then communion. Union with Jesus is the connection that comes when we put our faith in him, accepting him into our hearts as our Lord and our Savior. Guys, this is a positional connection to Christ, which we commonly refer to as salvation, to be one with Christ, to be in union with Christ. That means salvation. When I say that this is a positional connection, I'm saying that, listen, it is not subject to what we do or don't do in our Christian lives. Because salvation is a gift from God. The word gift, charis in Greek, means getting something you don't deserve. Getting something you do not deserve. It's a gift that God offers to you. A gift we receive by faith. Of course, you all know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not the result of our works, lest any should boast. And since salvation is a gift, and you don't earn a gift, there are a lot of people that teach that salvation can be lost. It can be forfeited. God can take it back. Well, why would he do that? Because you're not measuring up. You're not living up to his righteous standards. 
then it isn't a gift. I'm working to earn it. But salvation is a gift. You don't earn a gift. You just reach out and receive it or accept it. That's all there is to it. And if it's unconditional, which salvation is, just put your faith in Christ. doesn't matter how bad your life has been lived. doesn't matter. All that matters is that you come to the Lord Jesus Christ and say, Be merciful to me, a sinner. I receive you into my heart as my Savior and my Lord. When you do that, you are born again. That instant, you are made a new creation. Old things pass away. All things become new. And the Spirit of God moves in you, places the nature of God inside you. We have been become partakers of the divine nature, Peter tells us. And now I have the nature of God in me, and the Holy Spirit begins to bear fruit in me and then eventually through me. Again, I cannot stress this enough. You cannot lose or forfeit a gift. So that means salvation is positional. And by that I mean once you receive Christ, you are placed in the body of Christ positionally. That never changes. That never changes. Once you're placed in Christ and are saved, you'll never be taken out of Christ. Uh, Jesus promises that in John 6. Now, it all depends on whether or not you're really saved. I believe in eternal security. I believe once you're saved, you're saved forever. The problem is some people think they're saved or others think they're saved and they walk away from the Lord never to return. And then they start thinking, well, you can lose your salvation because I knew somebody. I, I knew somebody who went, walked the aisle, prayed the prayer, started to come to church with me. And then after a while they left and I've never seen them back at church ever again. Don't tell me they can't lose their salvation. You don't know their heart. God knows their heart. The firm foundation of the Lord stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who belong to him. He knows the heart. All they really were, if they've never repented, never come back, they were the seed that fell on the shallow soil, right? That sprung up quickly, but there was no depth. So when the sun came up, cares of this life, they fell away. Because you know what? It was all an emotional high. And after a while, the emotional wears off. And so now they're looking for a new high. You know, Jesus, well, he did it for me for a little while, but I'm looking for something new now. That's not the heart of a true disciple. And Jesus laid the truth on a group of would-be disciples. Many of them walked away, followed him no more. It was just too hard. He looked at Peter and said, will you also leave? Peter said, where, am I gonna, where are we going to go, Lord? Only you have the words of eternal life. That's the heart of a true disciple. Peter, with all of his faults and flaws, he exhibited the heart of a true disciple. So guys, at this point in John's gospel, now they've left the upper room. They're walking through the streets of Jerusalem. On their way to the Mount of Olives. Judas is gone. Judas is out carry, finishing carrying out his betrayal of Christ. You have the 11 guys that were with Jesus. And I believe, and I know this for a fact, and I'll show you why. I believe the 11 remaining disciples that night had genuinely entered into union with Jesus, which he verifies in verse 3 when he said, You, and the Greek is plural, all of you are already clean, cleansed of sin, saved. Because of the word which I have spoken to you, the gospel. He gave it to them, they received it, and they were saved. But there was one disciple who wasn't clean, who wasn't genuine, who wasn't saved. And Jesus talked about him earlier in the night, earlier that evening in the upper room. John 13, verses 10 and 11. He said, you are all clean, but not all of you. He said, you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean, speaking of Judas. So in that regard, guys, these 11 disciples had already entered into a positional abiding in Christ. Or in other words, they were genuinely saved. So first you have union, salvation. And then comes communion, communion. Look, the whole point of salvation is to glorify God by bearing fruit, right? Look at verse 8. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear what? A couple of grapes once in a while? Much fruit. I'm sorry, some Christians do bear a couple of grapes once in a while. They're saved. All right? I mean, yeah, because you'll know them by their fruit. There's not a lot of it. 
you look hard enough, you'll find a couple of shriveled, a couple of raisins hanging on the vine, but it's there. And by the way, that was the problem with the guy who his faith shot up, shallow soil, right? And uh, never came to fruit bearing, Jesus said. Well, Jesus said, you know them by their fruit, right? He didn't say you'll know them by their foliage. Some Christians go to church and they start to, you know, look like they're starting to, something starts, it's happening. You're reading the Bible, they're coming to church, some foliage is growing. Great. If it doesn't develop into fruit, well, the fruit comes with saving faith. So, but, but the goal is that we not just bear a little fruit. God wants us to bear much fruit for his glory, right? He says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be, or in other words, so you will prove yourself to be my disciples. But guys, that won't happen. We won't bear much fruit at all. That won't happen unless we as Christians stay in a perpetual state of connectedness to Jesus. We call this communion or daily fellowship. This is a practical connection to Jesus that, listen, is dependent on what we do or don't do in our Christian lives. Salvation, that's positional. Once you're saved, you're saved forever. Practical fellowship with the Lord, that's something we have to maintain every day, right? The just shall what? Yeah, get saved by faith, but the just shall live by faith. It doesn't end at the point of salvation. That's where the journey begins with the Lord. Now, this would involve what we do or don't do. There, are, there are, is what is called sins of commission and then sins of omission. Sins of commission, well, that's pretty obvious. Those are sins I commit directly. So I see something that belongs to you. I want it. I know it's yours, and I just, when you're not looking, I take it. I've stolen from you. I've done that, you know, directly. But then there are sins of commission, excuse me, omission. Like, what happened to me or what I did many years ago when I, before I got saved and uh, bought a little townhouse and wanted to put up some of these spindles to separate the kitchen from the, from the family room. Spindles were big in those days. It was the 70s. We were big on spindles. So I went over to the local, I don't know, uh, lumber yard, I think it was. They, had, they sold these pre-made spindles. You had, to, you had to stain them. And then, you know, urethane. All right. So they were like, I needed four. They were like $12.50 a piece. So I bring them up, and the cashier, and this before the days of barcode scans, she had to ring everything up by hand. Instead of ringing up $12.50 a piece, she rang up $1.25 a piece. Oh, my goodness. I saw what she was doing, and I couldn't get out of there quick enough. Like the Ikea commercial, start the car, start the car. <laughs> Thought she got, got away with something. What she got was a good deal. She thought she had stolen something. I did steal something. Because I brought that home and thought, wow, did I make out? Did I get a deal? I didn't get no deal. I stole from that store. Now, since I've been saved, a few times people have given me too much change when I have paid for something. As soon as I find out I've got too much change, you go right back. Or you know how sometimes they put somebody else's groceries in your bag because they're not watching, they're busy. You know, you open it up and, you know, there, there's something, we didn't buy this. You take it back. That's what we do as Christians. We're, we want to be honest. But before, before I got saved, I mean, you know, this is how, these are sins of omission. I'm not, I didn't steal, I didn't put my hand in the cash register and pull money out. I mean, the cashier made the mistake, but I didn't say anything. I was silent. It's kind of like when you're involved with a, a team at your work. And you've been given this big project to do. And you're one of three or four people. And one person does pretty much all the work. But the boss doesn't know that and comes to you and wants to give you all the credit. And you just stand there quietly. You know it was this other person. They did most of the work. But I'm taking the credit for it. That's a sin of omission. Okay? I'm not only really doing anything actively. I'm not saying a word. I'm not lying. But by my silence, I am lying. I'm misleading. So these affect my daily walk with the Lord, right? And there's other things, obviously. But guys, if we don't stay in communion with Jesus every day, and I'm talking about a deep, personal relationship as opposed to a superficial one. If we don't 
stay in communion with Jesus every day, we're never going to experience all that God desires for our lives. It's all connected to Him. That's why abiding in Him is so important. It is all connected. Yeah, it starts at salvation. That's, of course, at union. But it doesn't end there. And there are Christians who say, you know, Pastor, I just, I just, I just want to go to heaven. I, that's all I care about. Okay? You know, because, you know, they're working 16 hours a day, building a business or trying to make money. And you ask them, well, you know, you're never at church anymore. You're never at Bible study. You're not, how are you growing? How are you bearing fruit? Well, I'm saved. That's all I care about. Well, that's pretty sad. That's not the goal of salvation to just be saved. The goal is to go on and become like Jesus. Uh, Romans 8, tw uh, 29. The whole goal of our Christian life is to become to become more and more like Jesus. To abide, that only happens when you abide in him. But if we don't stay in communion with Jesus every day, we're never going to experience all that God desires for our lives. In part, Jesus told us in verse 11, well, some of that is, these things I have spoken to you that in me, in uh, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. When Christians don't abide, in other words, they don't maintain practical fellowship and communion with Jesus, they lose a number of blessings and spiritual privileges. Let me name them, all right? First of all, they lose the, the assurance of their salvation. Because listen, if you're not hanging out with Jesus, guess what? You're hanging out with the world. Because you can't really do both, okay? If you're not really actively hanging out with Jesus, coming to church, staying in the Word... Uh, fellowship with other Christians, I guarantee you, you're hanging out in the world with maybe old friends, unbelievers. And as Paul said, it was 1 Corinthians 15.33, bad company corrupts good morals. And if you're not, if you're hanging out with you know, the old crowd still or going places you shouldn't go, you're not going to be walking in the Spirit. And therefore, the assurance of the Holy Spirit that he places in our hearts once we're saved, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Paul's going to say that in Romans 8. It's not there. So consequently, people that are not really walking in a close relationship with Jesus, they're always worried about, are they really saved? Am I really saved? I've met people like this. Why, why are you so worried that if you're saved? Well, I don't know. I don't really see a lot of fruit. Well, why is that? I don't know. Why are you coming to church? Are you staying in the Bible? Are you talking with the Lord? You know, what is it? Well, I don't know. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But I know what's going on. They have placed the world above the Lord. If you're hanging with the world, you're not going to be hanging with Jesus. And therefore, you're not going to have the assurance. I don't believe you're going to lose your salvation. I, I believe once saved, always saved. But what you will lose is the assurance of your salvation. And that's almost as good in the devil's eyes. I mean, he's lost you. You're saved. But if he can neutralize your effectiveness by keeping you in the world in a lot of ways, well, at least you're not affecting anybody else or bringing them to Jesus. So you lose the assurance of your salvation, number one. Number two, you, you lose victory over the flesh if you don't abide in Christ. In other words, Christians like this are... They're never free of alcohol, or they are for a little while. They keep falling back, drugs, alcohol, uh, pornography, anger issues. Look, we all wrestle with the flesh once we're saved. But if you walk in the Spirit, you will not give in to the lust of the flesh. There's going to be a war, right? Uh, Galatians 5, 16 and 17, the Spirit wars against the flesh. The flesh against the spirit. These two are in constant warfare with each other so that we don't always do what we want to do. But walk in the spirit and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. It's an active thing. We'll talk about that more in a second also. So if you are never really having consistent victory in your life, you're not abiding. You're not abiding. Number three, you lose the spiritual dynamic and power of the Holy Spirit. Some of these kind of dovetail. You lose the spiritual dynamic and power of the Holy Spirit. We are supposed to be dynamic. Jesus said, uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going, to, uh, you're going to be dynamic. The Greek word is deutimus. You're going to have power. 
That's a dynamic power. We get the words dynamic and dynamite from that Greek word. So a lot of Christians don't have enough spiritual dynamite in their lives to blow their nose, let alone to make a debt in the kingdom of the devil. When a person's not abiding in Christ, they're just barely getting along. They're hanging on by their fingernails. It's the opposite of being more than conquerors. It's a life of weakness and impotence. You also, if you're not abiding in Christ, lose the abundant life, which includes great joy and fruit bearing. And finally, they lose their witness, their opportunities to serve God, and ultimately their rewards in heaven. The one thing you don't lose is your salvation, because again, that's a gift. That's a gift from God. And it's not the result of works, Ephesians 2, 9, because God doesn't want anyone to boast. So you don't lose your salvation. That's secure. It's a free gift of God's grace. But good heavens, I want to enter into the kingdom of God with an abundant entry. I want to lay at Jesus' feet for all the years I have been alive on this earth, serving him something to show for it. All right, this is an important subject. Okay. What's involved in the practice of abiding? What's involved in the practice of abiding? Well, there's two things. There are the outward actions, which we'll look at, and next week we'll save the second one, the inward attitudes. Hang on to that. Let's just focus the rest of our time this morning on the outward actions um, involved in the practice of abiding. When it comes to the practice of abiding in Christ on a daily basis, two schools of thought have developed, two approaches that try to address this very, very important issue, what I'll call the pacifist approach and then the activist approach. Those, who, those in the pacifist camp say the way to abide in Christ on a daily basis is basically to do nothing, but simply yield to the Holy Spirit and let him do the work he wants to do through you. You don't have to do anything. Get out of the way. Let the Holy Spirit do it all. Just submit. Their, their reasoning goes something like this. Christ lives in you and wants to use you the way a hand uses a glove. A, the glove does nothing except to surrender, to submit. That's the thinking. Those in the activist camp respond by saying, we're not dead gloves. We're not gloves. We have a responsibility to put the effort into our walk with God and do the things he has commanded us to do. Yes, we must yield to the Holy Spirit. But he won't force us to do the things, to do these things against our free will. So which one is right? Well, they both have a measure of truth. Both camps, both schools of thought contain a measure of truth. Look, abiding is not a passive thing like a glove on a hand, because a glove doesn't have a free will, as a person does. A glove can't rebel. All a glove can do is submit. On the other hand, no pun intended, abiding is not such an active thing on our part that it's, you know, all on us. We do everything, and God basically does nothing. Well, we know that's not true because Jesus told us very clearly in verse 5, it's not true. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, fruit for without me you can do what? Nothing. So this idea that it's all me and none of God is ridiculous. Look, I think Paul struck the balance on this subject when he admonished us as believers to Philippians 2 verses 12 and 13, he said, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Guys, Paul is saying that God works in, we work out. Or in other words, God is a part and we have a part. God won't do our part, walk our walk for us. And we certainly can't do his part. So probably the power I need for victory and fruit bearing. Look, as we surrender, God works in us. And then as we obey, God works out from our lives his will and his purposes. Practically speaking, there are things we must do if we are going to continue abiding in Christ every day. 
and in the process experience joy in the Lord. If abiding in Christ was all God's doing, we do nothing but submit to the Holy Spirit, then the writers of the New Testament, like Paul and others, and let's include the Lord Jesus Christ in that list because he didn't write the New Testament, but he spoke much of it that was written down. But listen, if we do nothing and the Holy Spirit does everything, then guys like Paul, Peter, and all the other writers of the New Testament would not have admonished us to abide if it was simply automatic, you know? If once we got saved, our Christian life was put on autopilot, and now we just basically, we're along for the ride, and God does it all. Well, if that was the case, there would be no admonitions in the New Testament for us to abide in Christ or to do certain things. If it was all automatic... You know, they would have said, you open your New Testament, you know, Paul, Peter, the others. Look, don't do anything. Don't worry about it. God's got to cover. Just go along for the ride. You're like, a, you're like riding a wave of the Holy Spirit, you know? He does everything. I don't say that. We have a responsibility. We are admonished to live certain ways, to do certain things, and so on. What are they? What, what are the things that we need to do, the outward actions that keep us in a place of abiding in Christ? These are deep. Get out a piece of paper and a pencil because you're not going to remember these. They're so profound. First one is prayer. Now, Pastor, I come here for insights that I don't already have. I mean, that's why, you know, you're up here. Prayer, this is what you come up with? Look, Peter said, I know I've told you some things many times before, but some things are so important, we need to be put in remembrance of them periodically. Prayer. Prayer is one of the simplest things talked about in God's Word, and yet at the same time, one of the most difficult to really understand. How can our prayers affect anything if God is sovereign? I mean, think about that. God knows what he wants to do. He's God. Certainly he doesn't need us. So how is it when I pray to him, it does anything? And there are people that believe that. Prayer doesn't do anything. It, it may affect me. It doesn't touch God. Well, Ezekiel 22, verses 30 and 31. I sought for a man among them. Israel was in bad shape. Judgment was coming. I sought for a man among them who would stand in the gap and make a wall between me and the people that would not should not destroy them in judgment. But I found no one. There was no intercessor. Therefore, my judgment fell. I don't know. Sounds like God was saying, "If you're not going to pray, I was. I'm not going to. I'm not going to act." The effective fervent prayers of the righteous, James tells us, accomplish great things. So I don't understand it. Why should I pray thy kingdom come? His kingdom's coming. It's like a freight train. I'm not going to stop it from coming if I don't pray. Why should I pray that? I don't know. But Jesus told me to pray. Maybe it does remind me a new kingdom's coming. Don't put all your emphasis on this kingdom. America, the world in general, is passing away. A king is coming. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's going to establish a kingdom that's never going to end, a kingdom of true righteousness. Let's remind ourselves that kingdom is coming and pray for it because it helps me to remember that. But, yeah, prayer is at one point profoundly simple and yet simply profound. We just need to approach it like children, talking to your father. In prayer, you talk to God like you're talking to a child talking to his dad or her dad. And guys, it's not a monologue, it's a dialogue. When you pray, give God some time to speak to your heart. Now, with me, he often just brings scriptures back to remembrance. And I'm like, okay, wow, I forgot I knew that, Lord. And, and that has happened many times. You place it, you hide it in your heart, the Spirit brings it to your remembrance when you need it. 
There's been times I, God reminded me of a scripture I haven't read in a long time. Forgot I even knew. With some people, he does speak more specifically. I was telling first service about a guy we know, head of a big ministry. He came into town a few months back, and uh, Cindy and I took him out to dinner, and he was talking about the things God spoke to him about the ministry. I mean, really, really specific things. And he went ahead and did what God told him, and wow, just like God said to him. Now, God doesn't speak to me that specifically, but he does guide me. And, and like you, the Bible says each of us has gifts from the Holy Spirit. Some of them are the same. Uh, prophecies where God speaks to us. With some, he speaks in a very deep, profound way. Others, it's more general. But we all have these gifts. They operate differently in each, each of our lives. But guys, let me just say this. In regard to communion, first and foremost is communication. And this applies to any relationship, especially our relationship with Jesus. But in marriage. Um, I can't tell you how many women over the years have needed some counseling. And part of the, a lot of it is centered around the fact that their husband never talks to them anymore. When we were dating, we talked for three hours on the phone every night. Since we're married, he doesn't talk to me. Grunts. But he doesn't really talk to me. I don't know why that is. I mean, somebody said, well, you know, men are hunters and conquerors. Men are from Mars. Women are from Venus. I don't know what kind of, what they have out there. But, you know, the idea is, you know, men are hunters, conquerors, you know. And so they, they, they're, they're courting or, or dating a gal. They're really on their best behavior because they want to conquer her. They want to marry her. And so they're, they're very communicative and very attentive. And then when they get married, that, that's all done. Now that, that, I've conquered that area of my life. Now it's on to my career. And she's left in the dust. What happened? But well, this sensitive, kind man who talked to me about everything, where is he? He's gone. Uh, my, by God's grace, you may get him back, but he's got to understand what's going on. But, but it, with regard to communion, first and foremost is communication. Secondly is the word of God. Okay? Prayer is me talking to God. Often when I read the word, God's talking to me. Okay? I mean, always he's talking to me through the word, but sometimes more specifically with regard to what I'm going through. That's what I mean. I'm going to have you turn to 1 John 2. But, be, but as you're doing that, I do want to read to you what Jesus said in John 8, 31. Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide, again, the Greek word meno, continue. If you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. It's truly my disciples. When people continue in the Word of God, I'm not talking about a sprint and in a couple months or a half, a, a six months, they're, they're done. It's a marathon. Every day of their Christian life, they love the Word, they're in the Word, and so on. This proves you're my disciples, Jesus said. Look at 1 John 2. It's a great passage for this whole topic. I'm going to read verses 3 to 5 and then bring in verse 24. 1 John 2, verse 3. Now, by this we know that we know him. This is a great uh, statement by John. If you want to know if you're really a Christian, well, how do I know I'm really saved? Okay? By this we know that we really know him, that we're saved. How? If we keep his commandments. Now, again, that doesn't mean perfectly. But if the pattern of my life, and it was before I got saved, was I would live in rebellion to what God had said, and once in a while do something right. And now the pattern of my life is, for the most part, I try to always do what pleases the Lord. Sometimes I fail. That indicates something new is going on inside of me. So there's, there's a change. Okay, there's a change there. Verse 4, He who says, I know him, I'm saved but does not keep his commandments as a liar, and the truth is not in him. In him, But whoever keeps his word, and again, the idea is, is consistently, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him, that we're abiding in him, that we're saved and abiding in him. Verse 24, Therefore let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning, well, what was from the beginning? The word of God, what Jesus taught. And then the disciples picked up and 
wrote down and, and elaborated on our New Testament. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. Word of God is critical. Here's the problem. I did a little research and found a recent George Barna survey. He's a pollster, Christian pollster, does surveys and things. I found a recent George Barna survey uh, which said, and I'm quoting, professing Christians who read, listen to, or pray with the Bible on their own at least three or four times a year, wow, that's impressive, outside of a church service or a church event had reached a 10-year low in this particular survey that wasn't that long ago, had reached a 10-year low registering only 48% of Americans. 48% of Americans. The proportion of American adults who never use the Bible has fallen to 29%, its lowest point since 2016. One of the main reasons why American Christians don't read their Bibles is only, this is amazing, only 22% of them believe the Bible is fully inspired by God himself and written, uh, and written by men who were divinely appointed by the Lord Almighty. So what the survey is telling us is three out of every four professing Christians don't believe the Bible is inspired. If you don't think it's really the book of God inspired by the Holy Spirit, why should you waste your time? If you really believe it's a book written by men with a lot of stories and a lot of things that are flat out wrong, maybe there's a few truths sprinkled in there. Why would you bother reading it? This is the condition of the American Christian church. When I say Christian church, I mean professing Christians. I don't know their hearts. I don't know who's really saved. But when you have three out of four professing Christians say, well, I don't read the Bible because I can't trust it. It's, I don't believe it's inspired by God we do believe it's inspired by God we do go to it for answers for direction and everything else because we believe with all our hearts that the book you have in your lap is a divine divinely inspired miracle book it's the word of God and we don't believe it down to just the basics some people well, I believe it's the word of God kind of in general no we believe it's the word of God down to every jot and tittle, every dot of the I, cross of the T. We believe it's inspired down to the very tenses of the verbs and the plurality of the nouns. Because Jesus based the whole doctrine on whether a verb was in the past tense or present tense. Paul built a whole uh, doctrine around whether a noun was plural or singular. They believed in the inspiration of the Bible down to the smallest details, and we do too. And that's how we teach it. Look, on the importance of prayer and the Word of God in a Christian's life, I want to read to you once again um, from Andrew Murray in his classic work, Abide in Christ. We made this such an important book. We made it the book of the quarter a few, like last year. I love Murray. Here's what he said. He said, and I quote, The more I think of and pray about the religious situation in our country, the deeper my conviction becomes that Christians do not realize that the aim of conversion is to bring them into daily fellowship, communion with the Father in heaven. For the believer, taking time each day with God's word and in prayer is indispensable. Each day we need to wait upon God for his presence and his love to be revealed. It is not enough at conversion to accept forgiveness of sins or even to surrender to God at that moment. It's only the beginning. We must understand that we have no power. This is important. We must understand that we have no power on our own to maintain our spiritual life. We need to receive daily new grace from heaven through fellowship with the Lord Jesus. This cannot be obtained by a hasty prayer or a superficial reading of a few verses from God's word. We must take time to come into God's presence to feel our weaknesses. Only when you're in the presence of God, like Isaiah, woe is me, I am undone, for I've seen the Lord, right? If you're not in God's presence, the flesh is always going to make you feel more puffed up, thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. Some of our being in God's presence, we are laid low. He just... When we are in his presence, we, we realize our own sinfulness. And we're not making excuses. But we need to be in his presence, take the time, to feel our weaknesses, 
and our need and to wait on God through the Holy Spirit to renew our fellowship with him. Then we may expect to be kept by the power of Christ throughout the day. It is my aim to help Christians to see the absolute necessity of spending time with the Lord Jesus. Without this, the joy and power of God's Holy Spirit in daily life cannot, cannot be experienced, end quote. But I don't have the time, Pastor. You don't know. I don't have the time to do what you're doing. Be in the Word all the time and, and in prayer and so on. I'm busy with my life. All right. Well, Jesus said, whatever you value in life will have your heart, right? Wherever your treasure is, there your heart's going to be also. And whatever has your heart will dominate your life. Now, do you want your life to be dominated by things that are going to pass away with you passing from this earth? Or do you want to invest your life in things that will never pass away, that will be eternal rewards that will be waiting for you in heaven? This is the question we have to ask ourselves. So a lot of people are laying up for themselves treasures on the earth, but they're not laying up for themselves treasures in heaven. And again, you can read Luke 12, verses 16 to 20, about the guy who, his fields had a bumper crop. What am I going to do? My barns aren't big enough. I know what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, build bigger. Then I'll have enough room to store all my stuff. And I can say to my soul, kick back, take it easy, you have much late, many goods laid up for many years. And God will say to that man, you fool. For this night, your soul will be, will be required of you. And then who is going to get all the things you work so hard to attain? And Jesus said, and so is the man or the woman who is rich toward the world, but not rich toward God. All right, real quickly, we're out of time. Confession. Confession. Sin severs our communion, our practical connection with God, but confession reconnects us to him. 1 John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, and the Greek word means to say the same thing. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What does that mean? Well, if I violate something God has said, and I come to him, and I make excuses, or I blame somebody else. I really think in my heart God hates that more than the sin itself. He knew I was going to commit the sin. And he's looking to me to see, all right, what are you going to do about this now, Phil? Are you going to come to me in brokenness, surrender, and say, God, I agree with you. What I did was wrong. It was sinful. But I did it anyways. I did it anyways. I was wrong. And I confess to you I was wrong. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What he doesn't want to hear is, it was not my fault. Adam, well, the woman you gave me, it's your fault, God. Oh, wow. Wow. i give you one more, obedience. Prayer, the word of God, confession, and obedience are essentials for maintaining our communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, a life of, and we're done here. A life of obedience is absolutely essential to maintaining your communion with Jesus because, again, sin severs our fellowship with God. I'll have you turn to one more scripture, Isaiah 59. You all know this, and I'll read two others that you don't have to turn to because you know those two. This is a classic, though, on this topic. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear your prayers, is the idea. So God is telling us, look, you're crying out to me in prayer. I'm not doing anything. Why? Because I'm not really acting. I mean, I hear what you're saying. God hears everything. But I'm not listening. Why? Because you're sick. My hand isn't short that it cannot save you from what you're going through. My ear is not heavy that I cannot hear your prayers, but I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to do anything about your prayers because you, your sins have separated you from me. You're not, you're not taking seriously your sins. Yeah, you, you're, you're, you're involved in something. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about something like, look, all sin is, I'm not trying to say that some sins are so minor they're not important. All sin is important. I'm talking about, though, a sin where you know you're doing it. There are things that we do that we don't even realize. A bad thought, 
or just something. I'm talking about if you're living in sin, you're, you're living with a person, you're actively involved in stealing from work or something. Then you come to church and you pray, and you wonder, why isn't God answering? Why isn't God doing anything? Your sin has got to be dealt with, all right? And when you deal with it, God will forgive it, and the communication, the communion will be opened up again. 1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Obedience is critical. 1 John 2, verse 6, he who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Jesus lived he said, I do always those things that please my Father. Now, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, we're never going to be perfect this side of heaven. But that should be the goal, right? To say, I try to do, I try always to do those things that please my Father. That should be the goal. So guys, under the heading of the practice of abiding, we have seen outward actions, prayer, the Word of God, confession, obedience. That leaves us to next week with the inward attitudes, outward actions and then the inward attitudes. And folks, let me just say this as we close. I think the inward attitudes, in fact, I know they are, they're more important than the outward actions. What, how, do you, what do you, how do you mean that? If your inward attitudes are not right, you can pray, read the Bible, go to church, uh, try to obey God, and he rejects it all. I don't get that. You'll see it next time. You'll see it next time. Everything starts in the heart. All fellowship starts in the heart. All sin starts in the heart. Our inward attitudes are more important to God than our outward actions. Because it's possible for a person to have the right outward actions and to have the wrong inward attitudes, and God rejects it all. We'll see that next time. All right? Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given to us in your word everything we need for life and godliness. We don't have to guess. We don't have to fumble around uh, walking with you. You have told us exactly what we need to do, the way to walk, uh, the, the things we need to apply in our lives as principles and so on. Give us grace to do that. We just, Lord, ask you for a burning passion in our hearts, to, to the desire to abide in you, Lord. Give us that burning, consuming passion. It's all we think about is simply abiding in you every day, that you may work in and through us, that you may live your life through us and do all the things you want to do and in the process pour, pour into our hearts everything you want to give us. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask it all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.